few weeks ago, I said to you in a sermon that I was going to be preaching this topic. And um, I wanted to read to you a few things that I have found over the years that deal with the crucifixion. See, Palm Sunday is a really weird day in the church calendar for me. Because when, when I... When I come to worship, my emotions are involved with worship. And when I think about Palm Sunday, and I kind of hit on it with the kids just a little bit, and it, I didn't mean to go there because I don't, I don't like doing that with the kids. But think about the fact that Five days before he's killed, we're screaming, we love you, we're excited, we're so happy to have you here, yay, bray, yay, 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 kill him, kill him, kill him. And it's very disconcerting to me. And this is the Sunday when that all is reflected on in the church calendar. Now, technically in the church calendar today is Palm Sunday where we're yay, 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 and then Friday we have a service where we talk about the fact that he died. But this is the beginning of that whole week of reflection of what it truly means for us as Christians to declare the death and resurrection of our Lord. A couple of weeks back, a friend of mine who had a horrific accident last summer faced his sentencing. And I was present in the courtroom and the judge, after listening to the district attorney and listening to the to the to the uh, uh, defense lawyer, and then he, the judge, had a lot to say. And about fifteen to twenty minutes later, he finally said to the defendant, "I have your written statement, but would you like to say one or any other thing for the record?" And after he said that, my friend said his what he needed to say for the record. Then the judge said, "I truly believe from all of the evidence." that has been presented here, that this was indeed an accident. There was no malice. There was no distraction. You weren't in, in, intoxicated in any way. But the reality is a life was taken. And I cannot ignore that. And as a result, there has to be a penalty for that crime Yes, I believe you didn't intend it. Yes, I believe you're remorseful. Yes, I believe that the spouse, the widow has said that she believes that you should be forgiven and given mercy. But the reality is you caused someone to die. And it's a very somber thing that we're doing right now. And it's a very sobering thing that we're doing right now. This is all the words of the judge. And then he sentenced my friend. A minimal sentence, 60, 60 days could have been years, literally. He could have charged him thousands of dollars and taken away property and done that. He gave him minimal sentencing. Which, literally, as it happened, tears began streaming down my face. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. A friend of mine who was a minister in this town who was present in the courtroom came up to me and quietly said to me, God is so good. But even after that was going on in our hearts, this, this small rejoicing... There was this somber sense as we walked out of that courtroom. A, in honor and respect for the widow who was standing there. And B, my friend had just been sentenced. And it was a deeply, powerfully moving time for me. There's depth of emotion that I can't even describe. Sorrow, remorse, rejoicing, but at the same time, there's nothing to rejoice about in this. Yes, it's a good thing that you didn't get the worst penalty, but my goodness, somebody died. And all of that going on inside of me. And that's who I am on Sunday, the week before Easter, Palm Sunday. It's this rejoicing, somber, ugh, it's hard to deal with thing for me. And I've, in the past talked about lighthearted things and, in the, and, 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 and even in this, in the beginning of the service, sermon, I want to share with you some lighthearted things, but, but understand that we're talking about something that's very, very 
somber. Somebody died so that you could live. And you need to reflect on that over the course of the next week. I want to read to you. Uh, Maybe. There we go. The Legend of the Dogwood. The picture you see is a dogwood blossom. And let me read to you the legend of the dogwood. When Christ was on earth, the dogwood grew to a towering size with a lovely hue. Its branches were strong and interwoven, and for Christ's cross, its timbers were chosen. Being distressed at the use of the wood, Christ made a promise which still holds good. Never again shall the dogwood grow to be large enough for a tree. And so, slender and twisted, it shall always be with cross-shaped blossoms for all to see. It shall have bloodstains marked brown and the blossoms center a thorny crown. All who see it will think of me nailed to a cross from a dogwood tree. Protected and cherished, this tree shall be. A a reflection to all of my agony. And if you notice, uh, the the picture, because of the lighting in here, is not as clear as as if you were looking at a a computer screen. But notice on the ends of each of the blossoms where it's kind of indented and torn and pierced. And there's literally a brown stain at each of those points. And it kind of could reflect the staining on the cross at the head where the head was pierced with the thorn and crown and on either side by the hands and at the bottom by the feet and the nails piercing in there. And the, 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 the blossom is indeed in the shape of a cross. And I did find one picture of a deformed blossom that actually showed a longer bottom petal, so it even looked more like a cross. And then the very center, this thorny crown. And, and the idea that, you know, that this is a reminder to the world of, of the, the crucifixion of Christ and how... At one point, the cross was used by, I mean, the, the wood that was from the dog would use, was used to form the cross. And just this whole quaint, cute poem to remind us of the crucifixion. When I first got saved, I was, this is more Midwestern thought. This is more Bible Belt mindset. I was saved in Southern California, beach country. And in beach country, This is what I was taught when I first got saved. The legend of the sand dollar. Okay? And you'll notice on the sand dollar that the shell has five piercings. You can barely see it, but there's a star in the center. If you were to turn it over, you'd see a blossom of a poinsettia. And then on the right, this is the structure from within the sand dollar. When you break it open, five little doves, quote unquote, fly off. Um, Let me read to you now the legend of the sand dollar. There's a lovely little legend that I would like to tell of the birth and death of Jesus found in this lowly shell. If you examine closely, you'll see that you find here four nail holes and a fifth one made by a Roman spear. On one side is the Easter lily. Its center is the star that appeared unto the shepherds and led them from afar. The Christmas poinsettia Excuse me. The Christmas poinsettia etched on the other side reminds us of his birthday, our happy Christmas tide. Now break the center open and here you will release the five white doves awaiting to spread God's goodwill and peace. This little symbol, this simple little symbol Christ left for you and me to help us spread his gospel through all eternity. It's another quaint cute little, look, I got a sand dollar and it reminds me all about the resurrection and the, the death of Christ. And I saw just last, this past week when we were down in Wasilla, a church had on their signboard, three nails plus one hammer equals four given. <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> Makes me think about the crucifixion. <laughs> What is cute about a crucifixion? Isn't it sweet to talk about the dogwood blossom and how it reminds me of Christ's death? Isn't it cute to look at a sand dollar and you can shake it and hear the doves waiting to fly away to bring God's glory? 
Three nails and one hammer equals four given. <laughs> Isn't that great? We're sick people. We make light of the one thing that brings us hope. The only hope that we have as human beings of ever getting out of this world alive. And this is the Sunday in the evangelical church calendar where we look at this. And I want to look at it. Not in a negative, nasty, overpressive way, but I want to look at it from this idea that we've been talking about for the last number of months. How can we be Christ in the marketplace and talk about the, re- the crucifixion? It's real easy next week to go, He is risen! He is risen indeed! Woohoo! But what do you do this week when you're at work? And they say, You seem kind of sober and reflective. What, what's that all about? You're normally chipper and, well, I need to share something with you, but I don't know if you will receive this. And one of the things that I want to do is I want to dispel the cutesy stuff. I want to give you facts out of the scriptures and out of tradition so that you can speak intelligently about what this week is. And so we're going to look at scripture and we're going to talk about different components of the crucifixion of Christ and what it really means to us. And then how can you share it with those that you come in contact with? First of all, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. This is the only biblical record declaring that there is going to be false stories about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. While the women, these were the Marys who were coming to the tomb on that Sunday morning, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened, namely the earthquake, the stone rolled away, the angel They kind of passed out, fainted. Jesus' body was removed. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now that's scripture telling us that that happened. Instead of the men who witnessed the resurrection of Christ standing up and going, "Uh, I think we made a mistake. They immediately enter into some kind of a cover-up because they're scared to death. What is going to happen to me? I could die. I was a guard. Do you know this is the death penalty Me for me losing? And so we're going to work out some kind of a little deal here. And you just tell this story. And that'll satisfy everybody. And, and if, if your boss hears about it, we'll take care of him too. Don't worry about it. And so they did. And the general populace believed the lie. Because who's going to believe that somebody really came back to life after they were dead? It's a lot easier to believe that the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. And you'll hear that even to today when you talk with people. Oh, yeah, right. Sure. He's resurrected. Sure. I heard that his disciples stole the body. Well, that's a 2,000 year old lie. And there are... 2,000 and less years old falsehoods, let's say, about this story that we supposedly know everything about because it's the most important thing in our, in our lives. But even, uh, even we have been sucked in to some of these stories because legends have a grain of truth and then they just are built up. So let's look at this. Number one, turn with me 
to hymn number 233. It's in the hymn book. 233. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And exchange it some day for a crown. What are you feeling right now? Sentimental. Sentimental. I miss singing those songs. This is what I knew when I first got saved. This is the truth. This is, this is what I know. On a hill far away. Where in the Bible does it say there? Jesus was crucified on a hill. No place. No place. We just have it as part of our legend that there were three crosses on a faraway distant hill outside of the city of Jerusalem where people had to walk for miles to get to so that they could go visit the... I'm sorry? No. They don't know where it was, but it wasn't a hill. And we'll talk about what Golgotha was in just a moment. But you see, this has become part of Christian culture. There's nothing wrong with the song. It's a fabulous song. It's a glorious song talking about the truth of the gospel. But it's brought into it a fable. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, and you don't need to turn to it, but just mark it down and look at it later. It says that Jesus was crucified Outside the city gate. It said in the scriptures, in the gospels, that Jesus was condemned and required to carry his own cross to the site of the crucifixion, as were the other two who were being crucified that day. Now think about this. We know from the story of Jesus's trial and all of the the torment and suffering he went through from the end of the trial all the way through to the time of his crucifixion. This man had to carry his cross after being up all night, being flogged, being beaten, being spit on, being name-called, and now he's going to carry his cross miles up a hill to be crucified? doesn't make sense. But to think he has to go outside of the city gate, maybe a hundred yards, much more feasible, much more practical, much more logical. If you look at Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine, it says the people who walked by hurled insults at him. Why would people be walking by mile or so away from the city on the top of a hill? It makes much more sense if Jesus is just outside the city gate and people who are doing their normal course of business on the first day of the week, walk by and go, you scum, and keep walking. And then look at John nineteen forty one to 42. We're told that when Jesus was taken down from the cross, he was placed in a cemetery that was nearby. There, there doesn't, it doesn't make sense that they would have cemeteries in that world that far away from where they lived. And so all of that combined can be deduced. There is no biblical evidence that it wasn't far away. But the reality of practicality of what we evidence we do have from Scripture gives every indication that it was part of the regular thoroughfare just outside the walls of the city. We don't know where the location was exactly. If you look at history, if you read through a lot of the things of this story, there is no physical evidence 
that is linked to the time of Christ to tell us exactly where. Lots of legends, lots of stories. Um, the place of the Holy Sepulchre, the, the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre that's currently in Jerusalem was not, uh, uh, even that wasn't from the time of Christ. That was built in the 300s. And so three centuries had passed before anybody found the location of the grave of Christ, which would have been close to where the, 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 the place of the skull was. But now let's turn to the idea of what Beverly brought up, Golgotha. Let's look at Golgotha. First of all, turn to hymn number 229. We got like five hymns this morning, so. Hymn number 229. And we're going to read or sing verse 4. Of him 229. Thus might I hide my blushing face while Calvary's cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. And see, it said right there in verse 4, Thus might I hide my blushing face while Golgotha's cross... No, while Calvary's cross appears. Turn to 2.32. Lead me to Calvary. We're going to just sing... The chorus of that one. 2.32 Lest I forget Gethsemane Lest I forget thine agony Lest I forget thy love for me Lead me to Calvary And then hymn number 236 we're going to sing the entire first verse and chorus. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free, Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. I truly wish we had time to just keep singing all of these songs because they mean a lot to me. I love them. But the question that I have for us this morning in talking about Calvary or Golgotha why do we do one and the other and are they the same and what, what is the whole thing and is it right? And so that's what I want to look at for just a second. First of all, Calvary is not biblical. If you're talking strictly biblical, the term is Golgotha, Golgotha. It comes from the Aramaic word Golgotha, Golgotha. The term uh, in, in, in English is G-O-L-G-O-T-H-A. Golgotha. You can find this phrase uh, identified in Matthew 27, verses 33, and Mark 15, verse 22. And in both of those places, it says Golgotha, or also known as the place of the skull. Now, we don't know why it was called the place of the skull. We just know that that's what it was called. This is called Pleasant Valley Store. Why? Because somebody named it that. There's the, there's, the, the, there's the pit at 25 Mile. There's Chino Hot Springs. People just named these things. The place of the skull was named the place of the skull. We don't know what it was or why. We just know that's what they called it. Maybe there was a rock outcropping that looked like a skull. 
Maybe that was the place where all the Roman executions were done and it was a symbol of death to the people of Judaism, of, of, of Jerusalem. And so they named it the place of the skull, thinking about it being a place of death. I don't know. We're not given that information. But where did we get this idea of Calvary? Well, there was a person named Jerome hundreds of years after the time of Christ. And he translated these verses, Matthew 7.23 and Mark 15.22, into Latin. And when he said, which means the place of the Calvaria, because the word in Latin for skull is Calvaria, C-A-L-V-A-R-I-A. So as Jerome was translating the Bible into Latin, he wrote Golgotha, which means the place of Calvaria. And so when the translation was gone from the Latin into English, we then took on the word Calvary instead of Golgotha. Uh huh. I believe it does. Yeah, I haven't. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, I believe it does. So, so that's why when you read the Bible in different translations, some say Golgotha, some say Calvary. Well, not Calvary, but but that's where we have this idea of Calvary because in the Latin, he used the word Calvaria, which means. Um, skull. The simple, simple thing. Easy. But where did it come from and why would... It's always bothered me until I learned this this week. I mean, I've heard this for 35 years. I've heard it for 50 years and I never knew why. No one ever explained it to me. It was just simply one person who's translating the Bible into his own language and he used this word and now everybody picked it up. That's where it comes from. Now, another thing that you'll, you'll hear talked about with the crucifixion. Were the nails placed in Jesus' wrists or his hands? Everyone who thinks it was the wrists, raise your hand. Everyone who thinks it was the hand, raise your hand. See, we're divided even in this room. There is nothing in the Bible that says wrist. However, if you look at the structure, and before we get into that, look at John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came to visit them after his resurrection. So, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord! And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was this time with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and stop and put it into, the, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have not, I mean, and have believed. That's the only place in the Bible that talks about the nails going into Jesus' hands. Because when they were describing the crucifixion, everyone knew how crucifixion was done when they were writing the Bible. They didn't need to describe it. But it's not part of our culture. So what is it? How is it? What do we know? We don't know. And that's why there's so much diversity. I can show you the website that shows all the muscles, musculature and says that there's nothing that says a living human being's hands could not support the weight of a human being, even one hand. But then others would say, oh, well, but it'll tear right through. So I can't give you a definitive answer. I can tell you that the argument is, is just what you said. If it goes in here, it would tear through. The others would say, no, it doesn't. If you go into that and it's not decaying and it's not soft tissue, it's solid human tissue, that's strong as a rope, it's not going to tear. You will others say that there's a bone structure right in here that would support the weight. However, then others argue, say, well, wait a second. If you go through those bones, you're breaking the bones. And the prophecy said not a bone was broken. 
Then they say, well, no, you go down here between the radius and the ulna. Well, the problem is in there, you've got arteries. So, you know, he'd bleed out. Because he remember he was on the cross for how many hours? Six? Six? Nine? Was it three? Somebody look it up. I know the earthquake happened at the, at the sixth hour, but wasn't it the, not the third hour? I could be wrong. Maybe it was just three hours. But even three hours, he would have bled out if an artery was, artery was severed. So we don't know. Biblically, we don't know. All we know is that the Bible says ham. So we have to trust that the Bible says ham. Now, if you want to say wrist or, or the, between the radius and the ulna, and the, I don't care. What difference does it make? He was crucified and he died and he resurrected. But this is an argument that's been going on for centuries. So what is it? Noon that he was crucified? Okay, so from noon until three then. But still, in three hours of being alive on this cross, he would have bled out if they had severed an artery. So let's look at the next thing. This is something that I don't like. But this is reality. Every picture, every physical statue, every crucifix that you see, Jesus has a diaper on. It's for our sensibilities. Because the reality, if you read the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless. This was the white robe that he wore. Okay, the undergarment. They didn't wear underwear back then. Okay, so the garment that was closest to his body was the one that was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said, let's not tear it. So let's just decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did, which means for them to have done that, to have to have gambled against who was going to get the undergarment that Jesus was wearing. That means when he hung on the cross, he was totally stark naked, which was an incredible shame and humiliation for the man. Let alone that he's being crucified. Let alone, I mean, can you, I don't know if you remember the story, but there's a story where a king dies back in the time of King David. He had been an ally of King David and his son comes into power. And King David sends an envoy to this new king saying, just as we worked with your father, we want to offer and extend diplomatic relations to you, the new king. And the new king took the guys who were there, the, the envoys from David, and cut off half of their beards and cut their garments off at the buttocks, it says, exposing everything down below. And David said to them when he found out about it, you stay in seclusion until your beard grows back and we'll take care of this humiliation that they just did to you. So it's their culture. They don't show themselves naked. Remember the story of Noah. When Noah got drunk and he fell asleep in his tent and was uncovered and he was naked and his son Ham came in and went, ah, look at dad, he's so drunk, he passed out naked, look at that. And he goes out and tells his brothers. What did his brothers do? They walked in carrying a blanket backwards so that there was no chance of them seeing their father's shame, his nakedness, and covered him up. And Noah then, when he found out what his son Ham did, he cursed his, son, his grandson, the son of Ham, and said, your son will be the servant and the slave to each of your brothers, which has come true to this day. All because of this issue of shame over nakedness goes all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. Why did you hide? Oh, we were naked. We didn't want anybody to see us. So we covered ourselves. There's something shaming about being caught outside naked. And Jesus was hung up 
totally stark naked for all to see. It was the most humiliating thing he could have experienced as a man in that time. Not only the fact that he was dying, not only the fact that he'd been beaten, but he was being shamed as well. I think God definitely cried. Another of the story. If you look at John chapter 19, verses 19 through 22, it says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So the Bible tells us that there was a placard. The Bible tells us that it was nailed to the cross above Jesus. Cultural and history tells us that what they did when someone was being crucified, as they're being forced to carry their cross through the streets, there was someone walking ahead of them carrying a wooden placard that had been their charges written against them so that as they were being taken out to be crucified, the population would know why this person was being crucified. So there was like a person crying out, this person is being crucified for the following charges as the criminal is being paraded out to his death. And then when they put Christ on the cross, they nailed the placard up for all to see why was he hanging on the cross to deter others. And it says in the scriptures that Pilate had it written in three different languages. Those languages were, they, those languages were Aramaic, which is the common language of the Jewish people, Latin, which was the common language of the Roman people, and Greek, which was the common language for everyone else. So all peoples of all nations could walk by and know why this man was being crucified. So if that's the case, then why do we look at, I don't know if you can see it clearly in there, but look at that placard and what does it say? I-N-R-I. If you look at any crucifix anywhere in the world that has a placard on it, it says I-N-R-I. Do you have any idea why? An abbreviation for what? Close. This is what it means. I, Iesus. That's Latin at the bottom there. I-E-S-U-S. Iesus. Nazarenus. Rex, which means king. Eudiorum. Eudiorum. I'm not a Latin scholar. So, Iesus. Nazarenus Rex E, I mean, Eudirum, Jewish. Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That's what the INRI is. It's an acronym for the Latin, which is what Pilate had written on the placard. I-N-R-I. Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. So for all time, when anybody walks by a crucifix, there is a gospel statement. This is why he was killed, because he's the king. Which is what I just said to the kids this morning, and you've got the cross there in front of you. We wave and shout, he's a king, but we killed him anyway. That's something you can tell your friends next week at work. And then finally, the last part of this before he's buried. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42 records. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was, was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
That is a legend. If you read, um, um, what was that book that came out a few years ago about the, the blood? The Da Vinci Code. That was brought out in that. But it is, it's a legend that Joseph of Arimathea was an uncle um, or a cousin or something like that. The, the, what we do know about Joseph of Arimathea was that he was called a senator, which means he was a leader in the Jewish people, which means he was part of the Sanhedrin. Okay? In addition to that, think about who, who called for Jesus' crucifixion. The Sanhedrin. Who else was part of the Sanhedrin? Nicodemus. So what we can deduce is that Nicodemus and Joseph weren't present during the trial or they walked out before the final thing in, in, in just because they couldn't deal with it. Because it said they were afraid. They were secretly disciples of Christ because they were afraid of losing their position. They were afraid of being cast out. Because if you got cast out of the synagogue, you could not do commerce with the Jewish people. And so they would lose everything to declare their allegiance and their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And as a result, after his death, they finally said, you know what? We've got to do something. This is just wrong. He does not deserve to hang there. This is the beginning of the Passover. We've got to get him down. And so using the authority that they had as members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph goes to the governor and says, can I have him? Can I take his body down? And Pilate's like, he's dead already. Yes. Can I have him? Sure. And so Nicodemus, who's wealthy and has the money to get 75 pounds of burial spices and the linens necessary. And Joseph go, and we're not told if anybody else was present. We don't know. The picture shows three people. We're told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other Mary and John, the beloved disciple, were present with Jesus right up to the end. Who knows if that was still going? I don't know because we're not given that in Scripture. What we do know is that Joseph and Nicodemus were responsible for Christ being removed from the cross. Now think about this, folks. This man who had been scourged and his body was literally ripped and bloodied. This man, when, when you have a wound, a really bad wound that doesn't heal up, what happens? It oozes. And there's, there's just a yellow fluid that comes. Okay? So imagine, his whole body is bruised, cut, oozing blood and yellow gus. There's a, a pierced side where his, his perineum, was, I mean his... his uh, Pericardial sac was opened and blood and, and water flowed out of his chest cavity. All of this mangling had to be disassembled somehow from the cross. Imagine putting a pry bar in there and ripping that out against his hands and against his feet. Oh, and by the way, the only way to get it into the feet isn't through the top of the foot. It's right here by the Achilles tendon. Right above the ankle, right behind the ankle actually. So they laid the feet one on top of the other and right through the Achilles ankle, I mean the, the Achilles tendon, or right behind it, to fasten him to the cross. So all of this had to be dismantled, all while they're supporting his body weight and it's dead. So they're covered in his blood and in his gore. And then they take linens and they wrap him with the spices and they carry him to a nearby tomb because it's late and they want to get him out from public view, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. This is a very intimate thing for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to do. To tenderly care for the dead body of the one that they believed was the Messiah. To willingly hold this gory, bloody corpse and gently wrap him and lay him with respect in a tomb. And they don't know what's going to happen in three days. All they know is that what they hoped for, everything that they secretly believed, is now gone into the mist. Because it obviously wasn't him. Because we killed him. And imagine, they were part of the group who had the authority to had we spoken up, had we not allowed our fear to dictate our actions, what could have happened differently? 
And again, we have the perspective of hindsight. They didn't. They were living in that moment. But can you imagine walking home as Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus and just trying to wipe this gore off of you? And that's where we're left until Sunday morning. It's time for us to celebrate communion. It's time for us to thank the Lord for what he did for us. And I haven't asked anybody to help serve because Mary normally does that with her absent. Um, I didn't even think about it this morning. But if someone would like to, I need two people to help, if you'd be willing to come on up and help us serve communion. And I'd like us to sing one of the songs out of the hymnal. You can choose whichever one you'd like. We'll sing it while we're being served and continue to sing it until we're done and then we'll all partake together. So if someone would be looking at the hymns in the hymnal. 234, what's the name of that one? Here, and down the center. What is it? I'm not sure that I know that one, Maggie, but we can try it. 234. I'm not sure of 234. 229? At the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I see my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Last verse. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus shared a final meal with his brothers. He held up a piece of bread and he said, guys, this represents to you 
the fact that my body's going to be broken in a very short while. And you don't understand it now, but you need to remember that as often as you eat this as a fellowship meal together, I want you to remember that I willingly gave my life for you. I did it because of my love for you. Eat it and remember. That same night, he took a cup, held it up, and he said, Guys, this cup, which in our tradition is known as the cup of redemption, represents to you my life that I'm giving, my very blood that I'm giving for you. Every time you get together, I want you to raise a cup and remember, toast me. Glory to your name, God. Glory to your name. Drink it and remember. Father God, we come before you as we close this service. It's a sober and somber time when we reflect on your crucifixion. And Lord, we understand because we know that Sunday's coming. And we're going to celebrate because of what it means to us to have new life in you. But as we leave today and as we spend this week, Father, in our time with you, I pray that we wouldn't just gloss over the crucifixion and what it cost you. Help us to, to meditate. Help us to reflect. Help us to thoughtfully process through for ourselves the true sacrifice that you made so that I could have my sins forgiven. As I said at the very beginning of this service, yes, it was quote-unquote an accident, but a life was taken and there must be a penalty. And in our case, God, you have great mercy, but there is still a demand for justice. And instead of inflicting your justice on us, you poured out your mercy on us and you took the justice on yourself. Help us to remember that this week, Father. And we praise you for who you are. And we thank you for what you did for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each one of you. Go in his peace. Yes. So he was crucified at 9 a.m., then at darkness fell at noon, and then he died at the third, six, ninth hour. So it was six hours he was on the cross. Okay.